All right, well, very good. Let's, uh, let's open with prayer, and we'll get started. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are the glorious Holy One that is exalted in heaven. You're a creator of heaven and earth, and you rule over all things. We thank you for your mercy to us. We thank you that you have gathered us together today once again, as we do every week, to worship you and to sing your praises. We pray that you would build us up this morning as we close out this little series on Islam, that you would equip us to um, deal with this very present reality in our world. And we pray most of all that you would show us the glory of Christ, uh, not only through what we study here, but especially uh, through our worship and through the read and preached word later on this morning. We pray that you would be with us, sharpen our minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are ending our little section on Islam uh, this morning. Uh, very thankful to my brother Jeff for taking the first two lessons in this series uh, on very short notice because of a, a little distraction that entered uh, my life. So I'm very thankful to you, Jeff. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, now, Jeff talked about the, the history and theology of Islam, and I want to speak to you for just a little bit this morning as we close this section out about Islam today and our Christian response to it. Now, you might wonder why we've spent three weeks on this uh, very much anti-Christian uh, biblical counterfeit, as Greg Bonson called it. Um, well, for one thing, uh, Islam, as you learned in the history section, was a major, major development in uh, the East and the West early in the Middle Ages. I think uh, Jeff used the term human tsunami uh, for the first couple hundred years of its existence. But uh, secondly, for many of us here in the U.S., uh, especially uh, American Christians, uh, more broadly speaking, we tend to not know that much about Islam except for what we hear from the talking heads on TV or on the Internet. And so it's good for us to, uh, to learn more about it and to learn, especially as Christians, how to address it, how to deal with it. And as we'll see in just a moment, Islam, even today, is a major world force, culturally, religiously, and uh, in some cases, uh, politically and in terms of military. Now, uh, just a little bit about the order of business this morning. Uh, I want to talk for a little bit about Islam today statistically, about what it looks like in the world today. And then I want to talk a little bit about what makes Islam so attractive. And then I'll end probably the, the last half, a little bit more, of our discussion this morning about a biblical response to Islam. Now, a little bit about Islam today. I just want to paint, just so we can understand uh, how it looks, not just in the previous centuries, but how Islam looks in our day. I want to paint a picture of the state of affairs in our world with regard to Islam. Now, just in short, uh, Islam is a very uh, uh, serious, I think, uh, although there are some assessments of how serious it is. Uh, it's a formidable presence in our world today, and it is, by all accounts, only increasing in its presence. And so I'm just going to give you some statistics to show you really the world situation here. Now, I wonder, uh, would anybody like to uh, give a guess as to how many Muslims there are estimated in the world today? Sure. Somewhere around one and a quarter billion. That is actually a very low guess. Uh, it's, it's somewhere upwards of a little over 2 billion. 
2 billion Muslims in the world today. Uh, to put this in a little bit of a, a harrowing perspective, if you take a, a well-represented uh, sampling from all the world populations, uh, it would be about one in every four person, or one, in, one out of every four people would be Muslim. Uh, that's how significant uh, their presence is in the world. Compared to Christianity, uh, how many Christians... Now, when I use the term Christian, I'm using it broadly speaking, including Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, etc. But how many Christians are in the world today? Does anybody know? Estimated. About two and a half billion? Yeah, that's about right. 2.4, 2.5 billion. And the way things are going, actually, uh, the number is uh, going to be flipped. That number is going to be flipped within a century. Uh, Muslims currently have the highest fertility rate of any religious group in the world. According to Pew Research, they average around 2.9 children per Muslim woman, whereas Christian women average about 2.7 children. Now, of course, that's ex heritage of, this is very much an outlier. Uh, we, we average about 10.6 children. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the, the point here is that in the world, uh, Islam is growing at uh, a faster rate than Christianity when you count birth and death and conversions and all of that. Uh, now, of course, all of these are skewed, as I said a moment ago, by the fact that Christian here is used broadly. Uh, of the 2.4 billion Christians in the world, uh, around 1.2 billion, about 50%, are Roman Catholics. Now, this is a, I thought this was a cause for rejoicing. Uh, in my studies, I did see that uh, Roman Catholicism accounts for 50.1% of Christians in the world. And so they're about to not be uh, over half, uh, which I thought was um, interesting and made me smile. Uh, Protestants are around 900 million, so about 37% of Christians. Now, granted, this includes Anglicans, which make up um, about 100 million and you know, many in the Anglican Communion we would uh, consider probably something less than biblical and maybe even less than Christian. Uh, this also includes mainline Protestant denominations, many if not most we would consider uh, perhaps even apostate. And so when you, when you consider those numbers, uh, Islam is uh, very significant uh, in our world. And just a couple things to consider as well. Uh, according to one resource I looked at, uh, I think this may have been Pew Research as well, by 2050, uh, it is estimated that one-third of the world's population will be Muslim. That is, uh, that is massive. And by 20, by, uh, I don't even know how you say this, 2100, 2100, uh, by that year, Muslims will outnumber Christians worldwide, uh, totally, uh, including uh, Roman Catholics. Now, a little bit about the location uh, still talking about statistics here, and when we think about Islam, uh, we think about it confined mostly to where? Yeah, the Middle East. And this is still, uh, still very true. You can see a little map. It didn't print so well in your outline there. But you can see the dark areas are those areas of the world that are uh, mostly occupied by Muslims. You can see the, uh, the North African, the half of North Africa right there. Uh, all of the Middle East, Indonesia as well is uh, mostly a vast majority uh, Muslim. There's a little dot there uh, in the north of South America that is uh, Suriname, 
which is uh, kind of a, a melting pot society. It's not mostly Muslim, but it's a large portion uh, Muslim, among many other things. Now, uh, in the United States, a couple of things to think about. In our own populace, you can see in the map there, it's not very darkly shaded, but in the United States, about 1.1% of our population is Muslim. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot. Statistically, it isn't, but that's about 3.5 million people. And so that's like taking the, uh, the second most populous city in the U.S., which is Los Angeles, and uh, that entire population is uh, considering them Muslim. And that's how large of a group it is. There are over 3,000 mosques in the U.S., the oldest of which is uh, just over 100 years old. In our own government, there's not a huge presence. Uh, the first Muslim elected to the House of Representatives was in 2007. Uh, that was Keith Ellison, a Democrat from Minnesota. And there are currently three Muslims serving in the House of Representatives, none in the Senate. And one source that I read uh, indicated that during the 2022 midterms in November, over 80 Muslims won seats uh, all over the country, local, state, and federal levels. And so that's not, um, that's not a huge representation, but it's certainly when you consider the state of, of politics 100 years ago, that's, uh, that's a big difference. Now, the reason why I bring all this up, I'm not bringing all this up so that we might be uh, scared or afraid uh, that Islam is, at least at this point, an existential threat to our survival. Uh, it's not necessarily. I'm certainly not saying that uh, Christ Church will perish into extinction uh, due to some kind of Muslim world domination. Absolutely not. All I'm trying to say here is that whether or not Islam is a, a potent danger uh, now or in the future, it's certainly a real and formidable presence in our world. That's really all I'm trying to say here. And the, the chances are only increasing that you will meet a Muslim at some point in your life. Uh, in fact, I think uh, even I – I was trying to find sources for this. It's actually pretty hard to, to find. But those of you that are more familiar with Franklin County, I think – there is some kind of Muslim compound in Franklin County, isn't there? Um, towards commerce? Okay. So it must be one of the same because I saw stuff for commerce and stuff for Franklin County. But I guess maybe, the, maybe that's one of the same. So uh, the chances are increasing. And uh, I just want to encourage you. Uh, it's oftentimes difficult for us, especially here in America, because of our recent historical tensions with uh, Islamic nations. It's difficult for us to see uh, Muslims as human sometimes. Uh, it's hard for us to, to even hear the word Islam and not think about uh, warfare and suicide bombings and things like that. I just want to encourage you that uh, from a strictly worldly perspective, many Muslims are decent people. Uh, I had never met one uh, before I moved to Chicago. You know, Chicago is uh, a lot more diverse than Royston. Uh, I remember in seminary, I volunteered uh, as a tutor at an inner city uh, Christian after school program in, the, uh, in downtown Chicago that was ministering in an ex almost exclusively Muslim community. Uh, I was actually kind of scared going in because I had, again, never met a Muslim in my life. The only images in, in my head were those images of warfare and bombs and all that. But uh, these kids that we, that we taught these families that we dealt with were uh, fairly, quote-unquote, normal. They were, uh, they were kind. They were personable. Uh, now, their souls are in great danger 
and their religion is, uh, if held consistently, is dangerous. Uh, but they themselves were, were perfectly uh, personable and kind people. After all, they were uh, knowingly sending their kids to a Christian after-school program and had, uh, had no problem with it. In fact, uh, were, were pleased to do so. But I just want to encourage you, if, if you ever encounter a Muslim, don't, don't be afraid, right? Uh, and hopefully what we're going to talk about here next will help you uh, maybe have some conversation with them. Now, uh, I want to talk about one thing before we get into uh, an actual apologetic uh, dealing with Islam from a Christian perspective. But are there any questions uh, about anything that I just mentioned before we move on? Yes. You are very careful when you're talking about the Christian population to say that, you know, there's one Catholic, there's other groups that we may not see as fully Christian. Does the same thing happen among Muslims? Are there, like, cultural Muslims that aren't really religious Muslims? Yes, there are. Yes, just like in, uh, just like in Judaism, where you have uh, Jews by birth who are not practicing Jews, you have the same thing in the Muslim community. Um, and there are different, I guess, denominations of, of Muslims, namely the, the, the Sunnis and the, I've heard them called different names, the Shias or the Shiites. Uh, the Sunnis are the, the vast majority, I think around 80 or 85% of Muslims are Sunnis. And uh, Shias, Shiites, um, about 12, 13, 14% thereabouts. Uh, so there are, there are differences, and there are non-practicing Muslims, I guess you could call them. It's kind of a weird thing. But that's the case with a lot of, yeah, it's, it's, religion is a cultural thing uh, as, as well as a faith, uh, spiritual thing. Any other questions or comments? Now, I did just want to talk about, before we talk about apologetics, uh, asking the question, what makes Islam so attractive? Another way of asking this would be, uh, why are there so many Muslims in the world? How did, how did a religion that is, as we learned, six centuries younger than Christianity end up uh, becoming so culturally and theologically and geographically uh, influential in the world? Well, just want to give you uh, four factors. This, of course, is not exhaustive, but you can see them there in your outline. Uh, the, the first is that many are born into the Muslim religion. And this is uh, really the greatest, greatest reason. Uh, for many Muslims, this is all they've ever known. Uh, they're born into this religion. They're raised in it. They're steeped in it. They stay in it. They defend it. Uh, now, it seems obvious, and it, I guess it goes without saying, but uh, one of the reasons I bring this up is that we as Christians should not neglect uh, the power of a familially propagated faith. Uh, that is a faith that is taught and believed and practiced in our own uh, households and in our families. This is how uh, Islam has been largely maintained in the world is through this. Uh, many Christians talk about uh, evangelism today, and it is important. Evangelism is very important. But uh, just thinking back in my own time in broader evangelical circles, how often do we hear about the cruciality of raising our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord as a significant way of not only maintaining the Christian faith, but even growing the Christian faith? 
Uh, Islam has grown through this kind of activity. Uh, now, of course, there are, there are converts to Islam. I'm, I don't want to give you the impression that there are, there are no converts to Islam, although numbers-wise, the numbers are way lower than, than that uh, by, by birth. Uh, interestingly, there are estimated, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to, to give an exact figure of these kind of things, but some of the numbers I was looking at uh, said that there are about uh, 30,000 converts annually to Islam in the U.S., uh, most of whom are African-American, which is interesting. There are, there are converts to Islam worldwide. Um, one resource estimates about 100,000 per year. It seems low to me, but uh, that, that was the number uh, in several locations that I saw. And so uh, the, the point here being is that uh, one of the reasons why Islam has grown is because of uh, their their families exceeding that, I think it's like 2.1 children per household is the number to, to minimally maintain a population in the world. Uh, they've, they've exceeded that uh, pretty heavily in that 2.9 children uh, per Muslim woman number. That's largely how Islam has grown. But uh, there are several reasons why people might convert to Islam. You can see reason number two there. Uh, Islam is a simple faith both in terms of theology and in terms of practice. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that Christianity, by contrast, is uh, an incomprehensible or a difficult faith fundamentally. Uh, a child can be, as we well know, a good and devout Christian. Uh, faith in Jesus Christ is simple in that regard. But with Islam, uh, as, you, as you learned with Jeff the past two weeks, uh, the theology and practice of Islam is uh, fairly simple. I mean, the creed is what? Who can, who can uh, give us the creed of Islam, that first pillar? Can anybody remember it? There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet, right? Uh, that's the creed of Islam, very simple. Uh, the practice is simple. Uh, Jeff talked about the five pillars of Islam, the first one being that shahada, that uh, confession, that creed. Uh, the others being, uh, well, can anybody remember any of them? The other four. Ramadan. Okay, so fasting, right? Ramadan, fasting. What else? Tithing. I'm sorry? They're tithing or they're giving. Yes, giving them alms. Prayer, five times a day, right? At morning and at evening, three times throughout the day. Uh, also, um, one pilgrimage at least to the city of Mecca. It's called the Hajj. Essentially, uh, that's the Islam faith. You do these and you live. You do these and you please, you're pleasing in the sight of Allah. Now, uh, what is this called theologically? Where you have, you just have these rules that you follow and as long as you do them, you'll be fine. What is that called? Works-based theology. Yeah, works-based salvation, legalism, right? Uh, salvation by works. And one of the reasons why, and, and we're kind of backing out of Islam here, but one of the reasons why legalism, why uh, work salvation is so attractive, uh, besides the fact that this is just how our fallen uh, human souls, uh, this is what we desire. We desire to make something of ourselves. But with, with legalism, with work salvation, there's a, there's a black and whiteness to everything. 
this is especially so, I think, with the biblical counterfeits, not just Islam, but Mormonism as well. I think especially Jehovah's Witness, uh, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. Uh, there's a great simplicity to uh, these cults' religions that I think attracts a lot. So, for example, with Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, you just simply believe what Jehovah's organization tells you. You do what Jehovah's organization tells you. And uh, that's all that's required of you. Now, you'll be made to believe that you think for yourself, but uh, in these kinds of, of uh, schemes, of these kinds of religions, uh, you don't. You're, you're a captive. I think uh, Jeff talked about how one of the big motivations for uh, Islamic obedience is fear. It's fear. Do this and live. There's a simplicity to that. Uh, thirdly, uh, Islam encompasses all of life. It actively and deliberately uh, subsumes every aspect of life under it. If you're a Muslim, you're a Muslim in everything you are and do, outwardly as well as inwardly. There's no separation for a Muslim uh, from uh, the home, the mosque, the job, public life, uh, out in the open. Now, of course, this is uh, different from many American Christians' idea of their faith, isn't it? Which I found a... Uh, an interesting point to consider. Uh, for so many American Christians, right, uh, our faith is something that we keep within us, uh, maybe within our homes, but it dare not leave our homes or our churches uh, as with all this con controversy about uh, Christian nationalism today. There's uh, a lot of talk about uh, how much Christianity do we bring into the public sphere, into the public square. Well, for a Muslim, this is not even uh, a consideration uh, and many people find this attractive. And on a fourth, final, and related note, uh, Islam is deeply and deliberately tied to culture. There's an attraction for those who desire their religion to be expressed everywhere in their culture. Uh, I was talking with Jeff, I think, last week after the evening service, and I mentioned to him, we were talking about how as I was studying for this and looking at various pictures of, of Islamic cities, one of the things I notice is that you can uh, almost immediately tell in many instances when you're looking at a city that is uh, Islamic. Uh, the architecture is very distinctive in many cases. Now, of course, there are modern, modern examples like, um, well, actually, it's an interesting fact. Who knows the largest Muslim city in the world? Any, any guesses? Detroit. Detroit. <laughs> Detroit. Uh, no, uh, it's actually Jakarta, in Indonesia. Um, if you look at Jakarta, it's like a very modern-looking city. Skyscrapers, lots of shiny things. But if you look in, um, in not that Muslims are opposed to shiny things. That's not the impression I want to give. But uh, if you look at, at a lot of Middle Eastern cities, you, you can see, you know, you look, at, you look at, a, at a city in, in Iraq or Iran or Afghanistan, and you'll typically see uh, a big mosque, and it's surrounded by four uh, towers called minarets. Uh, those, are, those are used for giving the calls to daily prayer. It's just, it's, it's a part of not just the, the invisible culture, but very much part of the visible culture in a way that, uh, at least here in many of our cities, uh, Christianity, other than maybe seeing a steeple flying above the trees, uh, is just not a part. And many, of course, find this attractive. Um, I have to confess that I, I myself... Uh, I'm, I'm not at all 
uh, even slightly interested in becoming a Muslim. Uh, but I, I did find this attractive about it. Like, I would love for my, uh, my own Christian faith to be more prominent, uh, not just in uh, the, the way I live and the way I speak and the way I converse and interact with, uh, with people, but also wouldn't it be so nice if, uh, if it were expressed in our, our visible, visible uh, culture, architecture and such. It's one of the reasons why people are always so floored when they go to places like uh, old cities in England or you go to, uh, to Italy or other places in Europe where, where Christianity is such a prominent, distinctive, visible feature. Uh, it's certainly, uh, in many ways, only that. But it's there. You can see it. And many find this uh, attractive about Islam. Now, uh, any questions about that before we get into our response to Islam from a biblical perspective? Yes, Paul. Yeah, and I think that's, that's part of the point I was trying to make a minute ago is that it's not, it's not exclusive to Islam either. Uh, I mean, Paul very much battled this with the Judaizers and the Galatians uh, very strongly. In fact, this is, this is what he comes down the hardest against in the New Testament. Uh, I mean, this is, he, he calls down a double anathema upon it in Galatians 1. And so, yes, it does appeal to the flesh. It's why it's so attractive. It's why Paul asked the questions ask the question, O Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Any other questions or comments? Yes, John. It seems like, it, at least it probably in northern and central Africa, Africa, a lot of the appeal of it is by the sword as well. I mean, they go in and, and um, slaughter people who are Christians, and many, many convert to Muslim, uh, to Islam, those things are going on. Yeah. A lot by force and by the sword. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's obvious why I didn't include that under reasons why Islam is attractive. Yeah. Um, but that's very true. And, and as Jeff said a couple weeks ago, it's, that's not, even early on and, and even today, that's not uh, the, only, the only method of, of uh, conversion. Uh, not all Muslims are, are uh, militant in that way. But it still is a, a fixture in a lot of uh, Islamic societies, especially where you have uh, populations of Christians within those societies. And that's uh, very much the case in uh, parts of North Africa, as, as we hear and pray about very often in our prayer meetings. All right, well, let's talk uh, for the remainder of our time about uh, our response to Islam. I uh, just want to give you a brief over, overview of uh, the apologetic method that I like to use for myself. I don't have time really to teach you about uh, the ins and outs of these things. I, I, I did look, uh, apparently, I did teach an apologetic Sunday school class that I was going to refer you to, but apparently that didn't get recorded. I guess that was even before I was an intern, and so I guess we didn't want that up on the internet. Um, but maybe that means we should teach a class on that again. 
so I can't refer you to that, but maybe we can look at that again in the future. So I, all that to say, I can't give you the ins and outs of this, but I just want to give you a little preface uh, to uh, how I'm going to approach this specific response to Islam. There, there are a couple of approaches to Christian apologetics. That word apologetics meaning just defense, a defense of the Christian faith. Uh, namely, a defensive and offensive approach. Uh, the defensive approach is showing Christianity to be true by means of uh, really just defending it against uh, objections. And so you'll see this um, most commonly in um, the, the so-called five ways uh, arguments, you know, argument from the cosmological argument, argument from first cause, argument from the gradation of value. So if, there's, if, there's an, if, if something can be called good, then that means there's some kind of perfect standard to which it's being, it's being judged, therefore God. Uh, that's, that's not the approach I'm going to take with, uh, with Islam. In fact, because Islam is a biblical counterfeit and because they in some ways claim the Bible for themselves, it does present a particular challenge for Christians and how to deal with that. And in some ways, atheism is a little bit, um, at least for me personally, a little bit easier to deal with. But uh, I'm going to take more of an offensive approach. Uh, this is the way I prefer to do apologetics uh, with atheism, and I think it works with Islam as well. And really, it's kind of a twofold approach. You can see in your outline the bottom of the first page. Uh, first of all, doing a, uh, an internal critique, so uh, showing how the unbelieving worldview of which Islam is uh, cannot make sense of or account for reality. And then secondly, making a positive presentation that is showing how only the biblical worldview makes sense of and accounts for reality. Now, uh, you can see on the back of the page there, there's a couple of avenues. Now, obviously, this is not going to be exhaustive here in like 20 minutes, but just a couple of ways that you can approach Islam are through its theology and through its scriptures, the Quran. And so uh, let's look at how we can approach uh, a critique, a defense of Christianity through a critique of Islam's theology. Now, uh, I want to get something first clear and out of the way, because this has been a controversy in recent years. Uh, unfortunately, even in Christian circles, I want to be clear, Christians and Muslims do not worship the same God. Uh, I think Jeff made that clear. I just want to make it double or triple clear. Christians and Muslims do not worship the same God. That's a claim that a lot of Muslims and sadly even some Christians will make, uh, but it's just not true. I mean, the, the, the descriptions, the definitions, the identity of, uh, of the triune God of Scripture and Allah of the Quran is entirely different, not even, not even remotely close, as we'll see in just a minute. But I just want to get that uh, clear out of the way because a lot of Muslims will claim, uh, perhaps more moderate Muslims will claim that uh, we worship perhaps the same God. Now, um, an internal critique of Islam. First of all, uh, as Jeff taught you the past couple of weeks, uh, one of the big tenets of Islam, one of the big uh, understandings of theology proper in Islam is that Allah is so transcendent as to virtually be unknowable. Now the problem here is that uh, if Allah is unknowable, then you actually, you can't have knowledge at all, according to the uh, the Muslim worldview. If you think about what it means to know something, if you, if you are to know anything with any kind of certainty, uh, you either must be infallible 
or you must have access to some infallible source of knowledge. Otherwise, everything has at least some degree of, of skepticism in it. Now, for Christians, of course, uh, we know the one true and living God who has revealed himself and is knowable. Of course, not exhaustively, but he has made himself known. Your Hardest Voss talks about him uh, unfolding his nature to us or, or uh, turning his nature outward to us. Uh, he is knowable, but for, uh, for Islam, Allah is not knowable. He's too transcendent. And if you can't know him, then how can you say you know anything else? <coughs> if he is the very creator and therefore the meaning giver of the universe, then if you can't know him, then how can you know what he has made? Certainly. Of course, this is uh, one of the major critiques, especially of atheism. Uh, if there is no God, how can you know anything? But I think it, it, it works well with Islam as well, uh, with their uh, doctrine of really an extreme transcendence. Uh, but more, um, more personally, this second point here, I think, is, uh, is very weighty. If you remember, uh, according to Islamic theology, Allah is a solitary monad. Notice uh, this is a point I made when we were talking about the attributes of God. I say solitary and not singular. Uh, God is singular. Uh, he's triune, but he is singular in essence. But God is not solitary because he is tripersonal. Uh, for Islamic theology, Allah is a solitary monad, no trinity. And if this is the case, then a significant uh, aspect of human experience cannot be accounted for, and that is love. Now, just, I, I would love your, your feedback here. How does the uh, Trinitarian, how does the Christian account for love in the world? What would be a way we could go about that? Sure, okay, so we can go back to God. Scriptures say God is love. God so loved the world. But uh, why can we say that God is love, and why would that be a problem for Islamic theology, saying that God is love? Yes, sir, Jeff. Uh, the communication between the members of the Trinity, you know, precede in eternity before even the expression of that that we see as God's love to man. It's first the person of the Trinity with each other. Yes, even before there was a world to love, uh, the, the Godhead existed uh, and exists, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in bonds of love. Uh, yes. That, uh, oh, sorry, Brian. Go ahead. That God needs something to love, and if God needs something, he's not God. You're uh, attacking his aseity. Yes, I mean that. Uh, yes, in in Christian theology, that would that would be an error to say that God uh, needs something to love outside of Himself. Uh, God is love even before creation, uh, and and Muslims can't say that uh, because Allah is not tripersonal. Uh, Albert, what were you going to say? Today, you say you, we need to love ourselves. And so, I mean, why can't God love himself? I mean, we're singular, but um, I 
true. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I suppose. But even, even then, um, how do you account for, the, for love and service to others? Um, well, he did love himself. He's just not expressed it. They have no, no narrative, no written, no anything that says that y'all did that. Yeah, sure. The, the point is, though, is that uh, love must be uh, given as well as received. And uh, Christian theology, the theology of the triune God, is the only worldview that can account for that in the world. I mean, how can, how can something, the, the point here is that how can something exist in the world uh, really involuntarily? I mean, human beings can't help but love something. How can that reality exist in the world? How can, how can that which is foreign to Allah, how can, exist, how can it exist in the world? How can anything exist in the world that's totally foreign to uh, its creator? Does that, does that make sense? That's, that's a big problem in my view for Islamic theology. Yes, sir, Paul. Would fellowship help us understand that? Is, uh, the Trinity, uh, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have fellowship with one another. We're able to fellowship with one another because, um, because that's who God is. Yeah, and we're made in God's image, right? As part of, as part of who we are and how we, how we live and interact and how we need to express our being is through companionship, fellowship, love, given and received, right? Uh, moving forward a little bit, uh, a couple of more existential issues, meaning issues that pertain to uh, living as a human being in this world. Uh, Islam doesn't really deal with uh, the problems that all human beings experience and know that they have. Uh, we, we all know, it, it's part of being a fallen human, being made in the image of God, to know deep down that there's something about us that is not right. Something is not the way it should be. This is the image of God in us, by the way. This is what Calvin calls this, uh, this sensus divinitatis, this awareness of God that is uh, made within us. Now, a problem for Islam is that there is no atonement for sins. Uh, Jeff taught you that Islam, the word, translates to what? Submission. Submission. Uh, Allah is pure power and authority. That's who he is. The only hope for anyone is to submit. And uh, I'm not aware of any Muslims claiming perfection. Uh, and so the problem is that there's, there's no atonement for Muslims. There's no atonement in Islamic theology. There is forgiveness, there is salvation, but no atonement. Remember, it's salvation through works. Uh, Surah 5.9 in the Quran says this, to those who believe and do deeds of righteousness... Allah has promised forgiveness and a great reward to those who believe and do deeds of righteousness. Allah has promised forgiveness and great reward. But without atonement, uh, there's really no promise of forgiveness or there's no hope of forgiveness. Uh, the faithful Muslim can only just have a faint hope that when they stand before the judge on that day that he will be in a good mood and not uh, cast them into hell out of his capriciousness. 
Uh, Paul addresses this issue in Romans 3. You can see there uh, in your outline 3:23 to 26, when he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, through the atonement. God presented him as a mercy seat or a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. Now that presents kind of a problem, doesn't it? God passing over sins? Well, Paul goes on. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The problem here is that God is absolutely holy. That is a problem for sinful human beings. We understand that. That is a big problem for sinners. Uh, God cannot just uh, sweep sin under the rug. That is a, a, a false image of what God does when he forgives sins. But rather, sin must be dealt with. Uh, either in the one who committed sin or in a substitute. And that is the gospel. Uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the substitute for his people, dying under the wrath and curse of God on the cross for them. Uh, Islamic theology has no such thing. No atonement. And because no atonement, there's also no peace of conscience. One of the first big therefores of the book of Romans, uh, Romans 5, 1 to 2, Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Uh, that is uh, not something that uh, any Muslim can say. Uh, it is a very much a religion of fear. Now, of course, uh, we have to admit that, you know, because Islamic theology has no atonement and therefore no peace, that doesn't prove Christianity true. But I think that does provide an important entry point, not just with Muslims, but also with uh, other biblical counterfeits. Uh, I mentioned earlier how Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, I believe, very much live in fear. Uh, very much live in fear of, of uh, the, the results of disobedience on their part. I think that's a good entry point for speaking and really getting to the heart of a Muslim, of uh, a follower of Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, of, of Mormons, etc. Now, uh, there's also issues with their scriptures. So we, that's their theology. There's also issues with their scriptures. Um, First of all, with its origin. Now, knowing what you know of the Quran, uh, what would you say is the big difference between the way the Quran was delivered and the way the Bible was delivered to people? Do you remember from a couple weeks ago? What's, what's the big difference? Would it be the Quran as one prophet and the Bible as multiple? Yes, so that's, that's, uh, that's part of it. But also, uh, because the Quran was delivered to one man and one man in a cave off on his own, uh, the difference between the Bible and the Quran is that uh, the Bible, when it was given, is a, a, a massively public thing. Had many eyes on it. It wasn't just people off in a corner somewhere or even a person off in a corner somewhere writing down his visions. But it was a very public thing. Moses, when he was writing the Pentateuch, was in the presence of 
uh, not just several, but millions of Hebrews who could easily have uh, verified or, uh, or otherwise what he was writing. I mean, they saw with their own eyes these things. And if, and if Moses had written something, for example, what they saw on, uh, on Mount Sinai, obviously it wouldn't have been believed. I mean, there were millions of people there. It was a public thing. The prophets were public people. Uh, the evangelists, those who wrote the Gospels, they wrote them in the public eye. They, and they didn't just write them and give them to a select few. They disseminated them widely. The epistles, we even have instructions in some of the epistles that when you read this letter, send it also to these churches and also read the letters that they send to you. Uh, these are public things. This is not something in secret. This is not something done in a cave. Well, the Quran is such a document. Uh, as Paul told Festus, uh, these things did not happen in a corner. Now, this is kind of one characteristic that I've seen that seems to be common to a lot of world religions. Uh, for example, Joseph Smith received the golden tablets, uh, not in the public square, but off in the woods. Of course, where nobody could verify what he saw or did not see. Uh, Muhammad was in his cave writing on bone fragments and leaves. Buddha was on his mountaintop. Uh, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, otherwise known as the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, very secretive organization. We don't even know who uh, translated the New World Translation, which is their version of the, of the Bible, uh, their corruption of the Bible. Uh, we don't know who translated these things. Very secretive. It seems to be a common aspect of false religion, but the Bible is uh, very, very opposite this. 2 Peter 1, 16-18 Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we, notice he's, he doesn't say I. He doesn't say I was an eyewitness to these things. He says, we were eyewitnesses to these things. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, it's interesting. Uh, I was reading a few days ago from a, uh, an early uh, Reformation document known as the Leiden Synopsis. It was a group of, of Dutch theologians who got together after the Synod of Dort and kind of wrote a, a, something of a systematic theology. And they talk about what makes a historical document reliable. Uh, and they actually, this is kind of in response, uh, not just to Roman Catholics on their part, but also they mentioned the Turks a lot, which... In, in that old, older language just meant Muslims. They give uh, four criteria for a reliable historical document. First of all, that the writers were credible persons. Now, uh, can we say that Muhammad was a credible person? Uh, there has been long centuries of debate whether or not, uh, well, exactly what was the nature of his visions that he received in the cave. Some have speculated even very early on that he may have been an epileptic. Uh, and that was the source of his visions. Uh, secondly, so writer, credible person. Secondly, the writer actually participated in the events written about. Now, for the vast majority of Scripture, uh, this is true. Now, of course, with Moses, uh, he wasn't there with Adam and Eve. But uh, there was a strong witness that had been carried through, uh, through the centuries, uh, through, the, through the Hebrew people that was contested, or not contested, that was attested 
by not just one or two, but many, many streams of witnesses. Uh, three, uh, no gain involved for those writing. And so, in other words, those writing these documents, uh, there's nothing in it for them. Now, of course, there was a lot to be gained from Muhammad, right? I mean, he's virtually worshipped uh, even very early on. And then four, they say all writers write the same things about the same events. Now, of course, this is impossible for Islam, isn't it? Because you just have one man writing about things. But all of these criteria fit Scripture. The writers are credible persons. They actually participated in the events they were written about. There's no gain for those writing. In fact, it was the exact opposite for many of those who wrote books of the Bible, many of them being martyred. And then for all writers writing the same things about the same events. It's one of the reasons uh, why it is uh, according to God's will by the Holy Spirit that we have not just one gospel, not just two, but four, four gospels. Now, uh, lastly, a couple of things about the claims of the Quran. Uh, I have to kind of zip through this, running out of time. But uh, just to make it short, the Quran has, has many errors uh, especially with relation to the Bible, which Muslims claim, you heard a couple weeks ago, Muslims actually really claim for themselves. They uh, revere Moses. They revere the Old Testament. Uh, they revere Jesus as a prophet. They even uh, give credence to the Gospels. And yet, uh, they don't listen to what Jesus himself says in those Gospels. They will say, for example, that uh, Jesus never claimed to be God. He never says, I've, I've had a Muslim ask me before, where does Jesus say, I am God? Well, you could respond to that. Where does Jesus say, I am man? He never says it. Those three particular words. But Jesus does teach that he is God in the flesh. So, for example, you can see there uh, in your outline, uh, John 8. It was a truly remarkable chapter. Uh, John 8, 23 to 24. And Jesus was saying to them, and interestingly, the, the New American Standard 2020 edition is the only translation that gets this right. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am. Ego e me. If you look at the Septuagint, Exodus 3.14, guess who says that? Word for word, letter for letter. God from the burning bush. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And again, later on in the chapter, verses 58-59, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Again, ego e me. And guess what the response of the Jews was? It wasn't, oh, well, he's not claiming to be God. No. They knew exactly what he was saying, which is why you can read there, then they took up stones to throw at him. Why? Because in their view, he was blaspheming, claiming to be God. Uh, other errors, just historical errors, you can see there are no crucifixion of Jesus. According to uh, Surah 4, 157, they say that he only appeared to be crucified, kind of a docetic view of Christ in that regard. Uh, no crucifixion of Jesus, despite the fact that we have not just biblical records and multiple biblical records, but even historical records to his crucifixion. crucifixion. So, for example, the Roman historian Tacitus in the, in the year 116 wrote about the crucifixion of the man Jesus under Pontius Pilate. So a historical blunder there. Also, uh, theological errors. <laughs> uh, the Quran very clearly does not understand what Christians believe and what the Bible teaches. For, for example, Surah 5, 116 uh, makes this kind of vague reference that appears to make Mary a member of the Trinity. Very odd. 
So uh, not the most reliable document historically either. Now, uh, fortunately, that's really all the time we have this morning for this. Again, just scratching the surface. Just a couple concluding remarks. Uh, if you would like more help with this, there is a ton of information under recommended resources. You can see uh, Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry uh, run by uh, a man named Matt Slick. It's been up for many, many years. Uh, he has a very good uh, website about, part of his website about Islam. A lot of good resources there. You can look at any debates by James White. I know many of you are familiar with him, a Reformed Baptist uh, brother from over in Arizona. Uh, he, I mean, I, I really kind of consider him to be an expert on Islam. He's debated many, many uh, Muslim theologians, and he has a lot of experience and really knows what he's talking about with relation to Islam. And then also a few resources from uh, my man, Greg Bonson, uh, a few lectures on uh, Islam. He didn't speak a whole lot about Islam, but what he does say is quite helpful, quite good. And then I'll just end with this. Um, just want to encourage you to really be praying earnestly for uh, the work of Christian missionaries in Islamic nations, uh, of which there are quite a few. Many of them, as we well know, face harsh pers persecution for what they're doing, uh, in many cases having their lives threatened. But uh, in recent years, there has been a lot of wonderful things happening in, uh, in the Middle East. I know many of you have probably heard and perhaps scratched your head about reports of visions that Muslims have had that ended up leading to their conversion. Uh, I'm not going to spend, I can't spend any time evaluating that here, but uh, the reality is, is there, there are Muslims that, uh, for, for whatever reason or another, are leaving uh, that faith, leaving that religion and converting to Christ and coming to uh, that, the true Savior, uh, of which Islam has none. And so please uh, be praying for that work, be praying uh, for Muslims and for Muslim nations, because I would uh, personally love to have those statistics that I quoted to you um, proved very much wrong uh, in the coming decades uh, for the glory of Christ. Now, any questions, comments? We have a few minutes, maybe address some things. Yes, sir, Brian. I'm actually not sure. Do there do Muslims practice sacrifice? I actually am not sure about that. I don't. I heard of that. I've never heard of that either. They may slaughter them ritually, but I don't think it's a sacrifice the way that we would understand it. But they do. Do they? Uh, yeah, but it's that's more. I think that's more attributable to uh, Islamic syncretism than anything else, mixing other religions. So, like my friend Jason. Um, he, he's told us stories about how men go out in the streets as Islamic men, they slaughter these bulls and they, their sacrifices. Mm. Um, so, I mean, it happens, um, but I think that's just the instinct that they, they know they need an atonement and they're pursuing that. Yeah. I, yeah, I didn't encounter any of that in, in my reading, and it's something I wondered about, but I just never saw anything about it. Yes, sir, Jeff. Oh, just going to make a comment. Um, I didn't get a, a chance to address the, the whole social relations in Islam, uh, and I think 
personally, that's one of the existential crises because clearly being made in the image of God, they understand the importance of family and relationship. But my brief reading on that, their, their relationships tend to be somewhat mechanical, which is actually a reflection to some degree of Allah's absolute transcendence. And so this idea of love is so diminished and suppressed, mm -hmm. and yet they do experience it you know, within their own communities to some degree. So I think that's a, maybe White has talked about that, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, my experience, that's not just with, with Muslims, but with a lot of different groups, that's a, that's a good avenue to pursue. Um, the theological, the historical, yes, those are important, but really trying to get to the heart. Like, you know what you experience, and your worldview can't account for it. Like, what are you going to do with that? And that is the distinguishing mark of a Christian, right? The love for one another. Well, I mean, it's, it's, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's a distinct, distinctive mark of Christianity, but I think Christianity is the only worldview that can account for it, that can account. Well, Jesus said, by this shall men know that mm -hmm. Yeah, I just, I just, I don't want to say that, that love is not a part of other religions. It is, but uh, it's the question is, is can can those worldviews account for the existence and reality and uh, desirability of love? And I would argue that the biblical worldview is the only one that can. Yes, sir. Just real brief too. The one thing that it's important to remember, whoever you're talking to, uh, Paul says, "I believe in the gospel of God's power," or "I believe in the gospel. It's the power of God and the salvation for all who believe." Uh, there, are point, there are places for making apologetic uh, encounters for all these different variations, but ultimately, like, if you can't say anything, point him to Christ. Uh, point him to Jesus, tell him who he is, tell him what he's done, and, um, you know, you might not be able to trace the history of the Quran or whatever, but that's, that's where, you, where you always want to drive a conversation. Yeah, that's right. Amen. Well, I think we can end it there. Let's, uh, let's pray, and we'll close. Our Father, we are very thankful that although we are great sinners, that you have given the perfect solution, sacrifice for our sins, even the Lord Jesus Christ. We could never atone for ourselves. We could never cover over our sins. We could never uh, make up for what we've done. But we praise you that Jesus Christ stood in our place. He took on himself your wrath and curse due to us for our sin. And Lord, because of that, we can stand in your presence. We can have access to your throne of grace with confidence and boldness and with peace. And we pray, Lord, that no matter who we encounter, as uh, no matter what unbelievers we encounter, we pray that you would help us as we were just encouraged to do to point others to that great reality because, uh, Lord, we know that uh, part of being human, part of being made in your image is having that awareness of you and knowing that uh, there is something with us that is not right. And so, Lord, help us to, as believers, capitalize on that in our conversations with unbelievers and to point them to the only one who can... Uh, be the solution and be the, uh, the cleansing power for our sin, for our wrongdoings. Uh, we pray as we move into worship that you would uh, help us to worship you in spirit and truth, that you would encourage us through your word and through our fellowship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.